Amen. Uh, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we have a few Bibles in the, the racks in front of you. You're welcome to use uh, Acts chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 34 as we continue our, our series through the, through the book of Acts. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read this part of God's Word together? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word from Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. With times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman woman named Damaris and others with them. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Would you join me as we ask for the Lord's help this morning? Father, we thank you for your word, your word which brought light uh, into darkness. That same powerful word uh, by which Jesus was raised from the dead, bringing life out of death. 
that same word that's at work today uh, in our hearts to open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to see our need for him and his grace. Lord, would you work in our lives by your spirit and by your word, that we would receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives and help us, Lord, in all things to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, just recently, a movie came out that probably some of you, I know some of you have gone to see in the theater called The Jesus Revolution. The movie tells of the beginnings of uh, what's commonly called the Jesus People Movement that started in the 1960s in California and kind of spread out from there. It was a, um, kind of a revival and spiritual renewal, uh, largely beginning in kind of the hippie subculture of 1960s California. In the movie itself, the story begins with a, a pastor, it's a true story, or based on a true story, a pastor named Chuck Smith. Uh, Chuck pastors a small, very traditional Bible-believing uh, church, and uh, he's troubled by what he sees going on in this hippie subculture in the 1960s. He's, he's in California, and so he's close to all of this that's happening. He doesn't understand the, the subculture, he, he's largely dismissive of it and kind of looks down on it, kind of what you might expect of an older, more traditional generation looking at a new generation that's, that's kind of throwing off all of the things that were, uh, you know, solid and believed and received. He's looking down on it largely, uh, largely because he doesn't understand it and he doesn't really want to understand it. Uh, but then he meets a hippie who's a Christian. Uh, a guy named Lonnie Frisbee, who's another part of this story. And as Chuck Smith is struggling to understand the changes that are going on in the world around him and understanding, trying to understand this culture that he sees, Lonnie tells him something that significantly alters his approach to uh, proclaiming Christ and to Christian ministry. Lonnie tells him that the hippie culture, with all of its drugs, all of its free love, all the things that it's kind of known for uh, now, that at root, those things are all a misguided search, but a search nonetheless, a search for truth, a search for hope, a search for meaning and significance. They're, they're all looking for significance. They're looking for meaning, for hope, but the problem is they're looking in all the wrong places. They're looking in drugs and free love and so forth, and they're not finding what they're looking for. But the church, Christians have, have, have hope, have real hope. Christians have the answers to these questions that the hippies were looking for, were asking. But the problem was that most of the churches were closing their doors to the hippies and not letting them in. And so they were looking elsewhere and finding false hopes and finding false saviors that cannot save. As the world around us continues to change, and, and perhaps quite uh, more rapidly than even in the 1960s, uh, changing in his view of life, and truth, and morality, that gap between the church and the world seems to be getting wider and wider. And so this is not just a problem for the 1960s, it's a problem challenge for today. Uh, our world, one writer points out, uh, today is much like the church in the first century in the Roman Empire. Everybody worships something. Everybody is looking for hope and meaning, but often looking for it in the wrong places. 
And it's the task of Christians, the task of the church, to see that search, however it's expressed in lots of different and often deviant ways, but to see that search for what it is, a search for hope, a search for meaning, a search for for truth, and to learn as Christians how to faithfully communicate the unchanging hope of Christ in ways that, that connect with the world around us, but also confront the world around us with the message of the gospel. To put it another way, if you can think about it this way, for, for most of American history, the dominant influence in our culture was, was largely a Protestant Christian view of the world. Now, that's not to say that everybody was a Christian. That's not to say that uh, the nation was somehow Christian in that sense. But it is to recognize that, that most people, whether they affirmed it or not, whether they recognize it or not, most people were influenced by a largely Christian worldview. And so at various points in our history, there's been kind of overlap, right, between the church and the world, between the beliefs and behaviors of Christians and, and the general beliefs and general behaviors of those outside of the church. If you think about it like this, it's, it's almost like at various points in history, the church and the world... Uh, because of the influence of a Christian worldview, the church and the world were speaking basically the same language, but with different dialects. So there were some categories that were similar. It wasn't a one-to-one correspondence, but there was some basic understanding between those who believed and even those who did not, but would still acknowledge things like uh, truth or some sort of absolute morality, that there's a real right and a real wrong, that things are really true and really false and that they can't be both at the same time, right? And so there's been this overlap throughout uh, much of history. Um, yet, over the last 60 years, that, that situation has, has changed. You could date it differently if you want, but that's in general the last 60 years. The gap has widened, and what we might call cultural Christianity of former years is largely disappearing. It's, it's going away in, in America. One generation's love for the old, old story is the next generation's disdain for the old, old story and desire for something altogether new. Now, rather than different dialects of a similar or same language, the church and the world are speaking different languages. They're fundamentally telling different stories about who God is, about what's wrong with the world, about what the solution to that problem is, and how we ought to live in light of it. At the same time, though, the desire for hope, the desire for significance, the desire for meaning is still present, though often misdirected. So we're faced with the same question that Chuck Smith was faced with in the 1960s, looking at the hippie subculture. We're same, faced with the same question that Paul was faced with in the first century, trying to preach to a bunch of Athenian pagans, the intellectual culture of the Roman Empire, the cultural center, if you will. So the question still faces us, how do we faithfully communicate the hope of Christ in a way that both connects but also confronts with the claims that Jesus makes and the call that he makes to repentance and faith. And that's a question we have to answer, at least in part, from our passage this morning. In this passage, we have some helpful direction and encouragement 
as Paul found himself in this situation in, in Athens, is very similar to our situation today. Uh, you remember that Paul has been in a place called Berea, and uh, some of the rabble from, uh, or some of the rabble rousers from Thess- Thessal- Thessalonia, Thessalonica, have come down, and they've stirred up trouble for him. And so Timothy and Silas and the other brothers in Berea have sent him on to Athens. And as he's there, he's waiting now for Timothy and Silas to come. Uh, and as he waits, he goes around the city, and he sees the city full of idols, statues, pagan temples of worship to this god or that goddess all over the place, uh, dotted here and there. Uh, and as he sees this, uh, he's moved to begin proclaiming Christ. And so let's look at uh, three things from this passage that I think will help equip us for faithful communication of Christ in a changing culture. First, we see everybody is looking for hope, but often in the wrong place. Notice at the beginning of our passage, uh, Paul is, verse 16 says that Paul is provoked within himself as he sees that the city is full of idols. This word for provoked, is, it's a strong word. Uh, it, it comes close to anger and indignation. Paul is stirred up within himself as he walks around this pagan city and he sees all of the idolatry going on. Uh, he is provoked within himself. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is he is a faithful follower and worshiper of the living God through Jesus Christ. He knows that there's only one God. And he's growing up in the Jewish faith and then embracing the fullness of that faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He knows the Ten Commandments, right? He knows there's only one God. You only worship that one God. He knows you don't worship God by idols. And so he's got this feeling rising up within him. He's provoked, Uh, because he desires to see the worship of the one true God. And what he sees is false worship. What he sees is idolatry all around him. And so he's provoked within himself because he zealously desires the true worship of the one God. But I think there's another reason why he's provoked in addition to that, kind of supplementary to it or complementary to it. He's provoked because he knows that at the heart of worship, whether true worship or false worship, at the heart of worship is the search for hope. And he knows that the things, the idols, the gods and goddesses that are being worshipped in Athens cannot offer real hope. And so we see in verse 17, Luke tells us, therefore, because he was provoked, what does he do in verse 17? He begins to reason. He goes to the synagogue first, which was his pattern, uh, find the Jews who were there. We have examples of what he probably said in the synagogue. If you look back in Acts chapter 13, you can see Paul's sermon uh, in Pisidian Antioch. He reasoned with them, as we know, from the scriptures, taking the Old Testament scriptures, as we call them, and reasoning from the Bible, as he had it, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of all of God's covenants with Israel. He's the promised son of David. He's the promised son of Abraham. That's what he would have emphasized as he preached and reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. But what about those in the marketplace? Uh, The agora in Athens, the place where not only commercial trade happened, but there was a 
uh, a trade of ideas, a marketplace of ideas going on here in this cultural center of Greece. They wouldn't have known the Bible. They wouldn't have known anything about King David or the covenant that God made with David and Jesus being David's greater son and the fulfillment. They, they wouldn't have, have had any of those categories because they were pagan. Uh, they, were, they were fully pagan. They didn't have any of this biblical background for Paul to start there with. And so notice um, there's this response. He's clearly preaching Jesus and the resurrection. His message hasn't changed. You have this response of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers calling Paul a babbler, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And yet there is some sense that what Paul has to say uh, might be important. And so they take him to this place called the Areopagus, uh, which was kind of the official council in Athens uh, for civil things, but also for ideas. And so you might bring somebody before the Areopagus, and he would say what he believed, and the Areopagus, this council of, of uh, leaders, would decide whether it was good or bad, whether it was right or wrong, whether they would allow it or not. And so these, there's this interest, and they bring Paul to the Areopagus because what they are hearing is strange. Luke's mention of the Epicureans and Stoic uh, philosophers kind of helps us to understand a little bit of this search for hope that was going on but misguided. Uh, these, are t- these were kind of two of the main schools of philosophy in first century Athens. And like, like every school of thought throughout history, they're trying to answer the deep questions of life. What's wrong with the world? Uh, and what can we do about it? What's the answer to our problem? And there's some parallels for today. The Epicureans, uh, they looked around and they said, the answer to the problem of life, they, maybe, I don't, they wouldn't have called it sin, but they would have recognized things aren't right with the world. Maybe things aren't right with us. Their answer to that problem was to say, there's, there's no judgment after life. When you die, you just kind of are dispersed like atoms. Uh, and so the goal of life is to pursue pleasure for yourself with no view of God or others. It was the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you might say, to the extreme. Their answer to the problem of life was pursue pleasure, avoid displeasure. Now, if that's not 21st century, I don't know what is. Many in our own day are looking at themselves and the world, and they see the problems of it, and their answer to that is, Avoid things that are difficult and bring displeasure or discomfort and pursue pleasure. And many are finding out what Solomon found out in Ecclesiastes. I thought pleasure would fulfill me, but it was all vanity because it was under the sun without any reference to God. So Paul's speaking to this group whose answer to the problem of the world was pursue pleasure. You know, hedonism uh, in its fullest extent. The Stoics were slightly different than that. Uh, They believed that God was in everything, what you call pantheism. God is everywhere. Uh, He's kind of identified with with creation. And that the way to solve the problem of the world was through essentially self-mastery. If I can just discipline myself and kind of conform myself with the order of the world, I'll be able to control life. 
Uh, and so, you know, we often talk about people being stoic uh, in, in the sense of they just know how to grin and bear it, right? I think we have this sense of, you know, keep calm and carry on. That's stoicism. But it was a little bit deeper than that. Uh, it was essentially the view that I, I can be my own God. I can have mastery over my own soul. Uh, I can control life as long as I have enough discipline and control over it. Now, that's a perennial view, is it not? We see the world feeling like it's chaotically racing away from us and getting out of control, and our reaction is, control it. Uh, Have mastery over myself and live life without reference to the God above who rules over all things. They're all trying to find hope, but they're looking for it in misguided places. And Paul is provoked. He's moved to compassion. He's not just troubled and angry. But he sees these are people who need the good news of Jesus. These are people who need to hear the good news of the resurrection and to be warned that the time is now to repent and to find their ultimate hope and meaning in Jesus Christ. Everybody's looking for hope, but they're often looking in the wrong places, misdirected, misguided just following the stream of the culture around them, which ultimately leads them astray. And it's the task, therefore, of the church, of Christians, to seek to communicate the unchanging hope of Christ to a radically and swiftly changing culture in a way that both connects with the culture and confronts the false hopes that the culture is seeking after. That's a mouthful, so let me kind of put it in a more memorable way. Our task as believers in Jesus Christ is to deeply, intimately know Jesus and his word and also to deeply understand the world, word and world, the world in which we live so that we might be able to communicate the one to the other. And we see Paul doing that in his speech before the Areopagus. Notice where he starts in verse 22. Notice the connection that he makes with this group of pagans who have no biblical background. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the ark and all the animals on the ark. They, don't, they haven't sung the songs about Noah and the archiarchy or anything like that. They have no biblical background. They're pagans. And so notice where Paul begins in verse 22. He begins from a respectful posture, and yet it's not affirming their idolatry. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And then he points to their objects of religious devotion. There's objects of worship that he's observed. Even an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Notice what he's doing there. He's starting with their culture. He's affirming things that are right about their culture. That they are searching for something. And then he is using that to bring them to the truth. He says, look at this statue over here. You've got an altar to an unknown God. It's likely that they had multiple altars to unknown gods just to kind of cover all the bases. He says, look at this statue. You're worshiping an unknown God, but I'm here to tell you who that true God is. He, he affirms that all people have this uh, innate desire to seek something greater than themselves, because all people are made in the image of God. And as as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
in the living God. And so Paul points to their own culture. He says, you're very religious. You've got objects of worship all over the place. He's not affirming it. He's just making an observation and connecting with them. You've got an altar to an unknown God. I'm here to tell you who this true God is. And then what does he do? He tells the biblical story. His message doesn't change, but his point of entry does. He doesn't start with the Hebrew scriptures. They wouldn't have known any of that. They would have immediately thrown a wall up. They couldn't have understood what he was saying. But he starts with them where they are, and he presents the hope and the call to repentance that comes in the gospel. That there's one God, that he's the creator of everything, that he sustains the world as the Lord of heaven and earth, that because he's above everything, he doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands or lips and uh, temples made by hands. He, in fact, is the one who gives life and breath and everything else to all mankind. He even placed them in their specific places. And he did so for this purpose. Notice verse 27, that they should seek him. Not a thousand gods, not an unknown god, but the God who can be known in his word, the God who can be known through Jesus Christ, his son. And then he quotes from their own poets, affirming things that are true in order to confront them with the true claims of Christ. Even their own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are indeed his offspring created by him in that sense. Verse 30, he calls them to repentance, saying that God has patiently overlooked their ignorance until now, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent and that he will judge the world one day by Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. The task of the church is to communicate the unchanging hope of Christ to a changing culture. And we see how Paul does this with this group of pagans. He starts with them where they are. He makes an observation about their culture. He understands that it's a search for hope. It's a search for significance. But he also understands that where they are looking is misguided. And that whatever they will find in that direction will fall short. Because there's only one hope in Jesus Christ. Only one hope in the gospel. Let me give an, uh, just a, an illustration of this idea of trying to communicate the gospel in a way that particular cultures will understand um, and then try to kind of make some connections to today. There's a story I heard many years ago of a man who was involved in a gang and uh, deeply involved in it, was arrested for his criminal activity, ended up in prison and was converted uh, while he was in jail, came to Christ through the witness of other Christians in prison. And when he was released after serving his sentence, uh, he had a deep burden to reach out to young men who were being caught up in uh, gang life and, and into that culture. And so he began witnessing on the streets and, and sharing Christ with anybody who would listen to him. And he met this one young man who uh, he kind of took under his wing and, and shared Christ with them. The young man came to Christ and, and was uh, brought into eternal life with Jesus Christ through his witness. But he was a member of a gang, and at a certain point in this discipleship relationship, the older man said to the younger man, you've got to get out of this gang. You can't, you can't be a Christian and be a part of this gang anymore. And the young man said, I know, I know that that's right, but there's a problem. In order for me to get out of this gang, their tradition is 
You get beat up to get in, you get beat up to get out. And many times the beating up to get out was so bad, you didn't really make it out. And so he was concerned, he was scared, he was anxious about this prospect of going back to this gang and saying, I've got a new leader, <laughs> uh, and it's not you, it's a savior who's risen from the dead, and I want out. Uh, he was anxious about that. And so the older man who, had, who was discipling him, who had led him to Christ, told him, don't worry about it. Let's go and talk to them. And so they, they go and they talk to kind of the leaders of the gang, and the older man says to them, I'll take the beating for him. You beat me up, and you let him go. Now, that's, that's, that's an extreme example, but it's an example of embodying the message of the gospel in a way that communicated clearly to a particular culture, in this case, the gang. By doing that, he was demonstrating with his own sacrificial love the greater love of Jesus, who very truly stood in our place who very truly took upon himself at his cross the very wrath of God for our sins so that we could be set free, so, so that we would be redeemed from the curse of sin, from slavery to sin, the tyranny of the devil, and even the fear of death itself by trusting in a risen Savior. Jesus did that for us in the gospel, and this man embodied that. He demonstrated that aspect of the message of the gospel to this culture in the gang. He got beat up in the place of another so that that other could be set free. The church is constantly in need of, of learning how to communicate the unchanging truth of the gospel, knowing deeply Jesus and his word, so that we might be able to communicate it to a, a quickly changing culture. Uh, to know the world well enough to see where are they searching for hope? Where are they looking for meaning? And how can we as believers come alongside and listen for that search for hope? Uh, listen without condemnation. I think often Christians are, are eager to kind of stand on a platform aside and above the rest of the world and look down in condemnation at the way other people created in the image of God are desperately searching for hope and not finding it and expressing that in all manner of deviant and sinful ways. It's easy for us to stand back and say, look how foolish they are. What are they doing? And to forget that we were once there. And Jesus, by his grace, brought us out of darkness and into light, not because we had it figured out, but because God is gracious and God is in the business of giving real hope to real sinners like us and like the rest of the world around us. And he's choosing to use you to be those who come alongside your, your unbelieving friends and neighbors, your unbelieving family members, to hear and to see and to listen to how they are searching for hope. They may not have a statue to an unknown God, but I guarantee if they're not trusting in Jesus, they're looking for that unknown God somewhere. And usually it's in the wrong place. Our, our, our world is in desperate need of a Savior. 
and they don't speak in the same language that Christians speak. They don't operate with the same categories of thought that Christians operate in. And so it's our task to learn how to connect those two by listening to where they are, seeing where that false hope is, and helping them to see how that false hope will never come through and what it promises, that only Jesus is able to do that. We see the world struggling to understand where real hope lies. And it's our task as Christians to present that to them clearly, even as Paul began to do in this passage. We have good news of real hope, and we have a task to communicate that to those around us, to listen, to speak the truth in love, and to invite people to be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's clear that not all respond positively to that message. Not, not everybody jumps up and cheers when they hear the good news, uh, even though we may think it's the best news ever. Not everybody responds in that way. And, and you see the same thing in this passage as we, as we close. Some mock, uh, Luke tells us, verse 32, they hear the resurrection of the dead. Like, That's crazy. What are you talking about? Some mock. Some want to know more, and some believe. Where are you today? And in which of those three categories do you find yourself, those three different responses to the good news, that, that there's a Savior who died for sins and who offers forgiveness of real sin, justice, which our world loves but doesn't quite know how to define, and mercy, which our world seemingly does not know how to deal with. They just want all atonement and no forgiveness. And the cross gives us both. That there is justice for sin, for transgression, for real wrongdoing, and there is mercy and forgiveness for those who trust in Jesus and what he did at the cross. Our world does not know how to reckon with those two things being together. But at the cross, we find them in perfect harmony because that's God's plan. Jesus in our place. He died for us. Where, where are you in response to that message of good news that Jesus died and rose again and, and calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe in him, to turn from sin and to turn to him in faith? If you're a mocker of the gospel, then I encourage you to ask yourself this question. What solution do you have? What, what is the answer that you have to offer for the problems within you and around you? And, and is it is it better than the gospel? I would venture to say there's no way possible that only in Jesus do we find an answer to the problem of sin in us and sin in the world because only Jesus died and rose again and calls people to trust in him. If you're mocking, what solution do you have to the problems of the human heart? Dismiss them, pursue pleasure to ignore it, hope to, over, hope to overcome it by discipline and duty. These have all been tried and found wanting. Only Jesus is the way. Perhaps you're curious. Uh, you're hearing these things, and they seem new, they seem strange, and you'd like to know more. You have questions that are being raised. Great. You're in the right place. Talk to somebody. Don't, don't be afraid of your questions as though Jesus can't handle them. Uh, talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to any of the members of the church here. Ask them about Jesus. 
to describe and to give an answer for the hope that they have within them. They would love to do that. Any of us would love to do that if you're curious. Don't think that your sin is so bad that Jesus can't handle it. Don't think that you're good enough that you don't need to pursue your questions any further. Put all hindrances aside and seek the truth that is found in Jesus, and he will meet you there. If you're a believer, if you're in that third category of responses, like Dionysius and Damaris, then praise God and and learn from Paul how to faithfully communicate God's word in our changing world that's frequently hostile to the gospel, but is soft to loving relationships from people who are genuinely interested in them. Uh, You don't have to be some sort of academic. You don't have to read a thousand books so that you know all the different philosophies and all the ins and outs of what the world is believing. You don't have to to be an expert on all those things. All you have to do is love Jesus and love people and love them enough to walk beside them when they don't agree with you, uh, to not slam them when their view is different than yours and you think it's wrong, Uh, Don't treat people in person the way we treat them on Facebook. Don't do that. Walk beside them. Love them. Listen to them because I guarantee if you're walking beside, you're walking alongside in in the life of another person who's not a believer, you can know at least this one true thing about them, among many other things. They are searching for hope. They are searching for significance. They are searching for meaning. And whether they are looking in all the wrong places or whatever, You've got good news. You've got the love of God in Jesus Christ through whom all our sins are forgiven and the justice that is due for our sin is placed on Christ so that we don't have to bear it any longer. There's real hope in Jesus who died and rose again. And so if you're a believer, if you've responded to that good news with repentance and faith and you have that hope, then look for those opportunities to to walk alongside people who are also looking for it but are misguided or misdirected or simply like the Athenians, they're ignorant of the truth. You might have an opportunity to give hope uh, to those who are in your life. And so take time to not only understand the word, to know Jesus, but to also understand the world in which we live. There's a gap, to be sure, There's a gap in worldviews between the church and the world, and that gap is ever widening as we live in what most people call the post-Christian era. It's a gap that we need to work hard to try to bridge through communication, understanding the culture around us, and, and seeking to communicate the truth of the gospel in a meaningful way to those who would listen. But there's a bigger gap, uh, and we should not miss it. There's a larger gap, an infinite gap, one that we cannot bridge between unrepentant people and the living God. That is the main gap that needs to be spanned. And it's only the breadth of the cross of Jesus and the spirit of the living God that can do that. But he has chosen to give you hope so that he can use you in that endeavor. May he do it for his glory. Would you pray with me?